0: welcome to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly where parliament begins just three days after katie telford's testimony at ottawa just the other day and we're going to discuss that and lots more with dr laurie turnbull the director of school of public administration of dalhousie university also the latest and greatest from queens park and we cover all things in american politics with reggie cicchini's weekly washington report it's all coming up with the bill kelly podcast and it starts now Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. To begin with, as we said, it's uh, back to work for our Canadian members of Parliament after a little time down, and of course, uh, after the uh, work of the, the Parliamentary Committee that was looking into, uh, well, foreign interference. And as uh, Stephanie Taylor reports, uh, well, you know, the, it got hot and heavy during the testimony over the last uh, couple of days, and uh, we're going to find out just how much of the uh, uh, that, that testimony that uh, the uh, basically was being driven by the opposition MPs on that particular committee is going to impact question period today. Here's Stephanie Taylor's report.
1: These matters are extremely sensitive, and the law limits what I can talk about in this public setting.
2: Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, warned MPs she couldn't speak to specifics on who was briefed on what and when. That frustrated committee members like Conservative Michael Cooper, who said Canadians deserve answers on direct questions of interference during the past two federal elections. I can't speak to that, Madam Chair, in terms of the specifics. Uh, an never convenient uh, non-answer. Telford says MPs only have a few more weeks to wait until former Governor General David Johnston delivers his recommendation on whether Trudeau should call a public inquiry, a move opposition parties accuse him of stalling. Stephanie Taylor, the Canadian Press, Ottawa.
0: And that's where we're going to begin our coverage uh, about what's going to be happening in Ottawa. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, thanks so much for the time. It's a a wonderful weekend and now a chilly Monday, which I guess is kind of fitting heading back to Parliament because it's kind of frosty on the opposition side these days, isn't it?
2: Oh, for sure. You're right. The weather shifted just in time to create this sort of cloud over what's going to happen over Mm -hmm. the next few weeks. Yeah,
0: for sure. There's work to be done here. We'll talk about that in a couple of seconds. Some pending legislation that's uh, uh, very important and very controversial, too. But I got to figure that uh, Mr. Polyev and and company are going to be focusing on on Telford's uh, testimony, or as they call it, non-testimony from last week.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, the conservatives were the ones who were really calling for Katie Telford's testimony. She's the chief of staff to the prime minister, and they wanted to, um, you know, ostensibly get some answers from her about what the prime minister knew and when. But, of course, they knew as well as everybody else that she wasn't going to be able to tell anything that we didn't know already. She's, She's bound by law. She can't come and give away state secrets. And so they ask her question after question and then say, oh, well, look, you know, we tried to get answers from this woman and we didn't. So I'm assuming that the next step is going to be to call the prime minister to the committee.
0: Well, which may or may not happen, I suppose. But, I mean, as you and I talked about last week uh, in anticipation of this testimony uh, from Telford, this this was politically oriented. I mean, as you say, these are not dumb people on the other side. They they know that that she's bound by her oath and she's not going to talk about this. It was really trying to to embarrass the government, wasn't it?
2: Exactly. They're trying to, to point to the, all the time she said, I can't answer that, and say, look, their government is hiding something. And I think that's why um, Ms. Telford spent the first part of her testimony, like her opening statement, which she, which she you know, to, it's her own remarks she delivers, not in response to a question. And she was talking about the security process. And the process by which uh, sensitive and secure intelligence is handled internally by the Prime Minister's Office, by her, how she briefs the, the Prime Minister, what the protocols are, so that people would understand why. Like I think she was setting that up to then be the context and the background for why she wouldn't be an- be able to answer follow-up questions. She also spoke to the fact that leaking intelligence is dangerous and um, you know not good in the public, not good for the public interest, not good for national security. And so I think sort of giving some attention to how this all became a story in the first place, you know, and pointing some attention to the fact that allegedly this has all been leaked by a thesis agent. So I thought it was it was interesting the way she set that up and the way she went through that, you know, in in detail as much as she could, again, without actually giving any information that said that
0: Exactly. And uh, to try to get some perspective on this, uh, speaking of CSIS, uh, the former director of of CSIS, uh, Ward Elcock, uh, was asked about the testimony afterwards. And he said the whole idea of calling Telford to the committee was, in his words, almost kind of silly. Uh, He goes on to say, to be perfectly honest, I never thought this had anything to do with reality. The call for Katie Telford to appear has been more than anything else political grandstanding. Now, that's the former head of CSIS. So they understood just how silly this whole thing was.
2: Oh, 100 percent. Because, like, it it was weird to me, even from a political standpoint. Like, I I agree with him 100%. This was just political. This had nothing to do with actually finding out more about foreign interference. This has nothing to do with any sort of evolution of the role of, like, the the meaning of ministerial responsibility. It has nothing to do with that. This had to do with the conservatives wanting to show that they could, you know, kind of drag the chief of staff to the prime minister before the committee, and then set her up to be to have to give non-answers to a bunch of questions for two and a half hours, but even politically, I think that the payoff for this for the conservatives is going to be close to nothing. Like I don't think this is a big win for them. I don't think it's a big loss for them either. And that most people um, weren't paying attention to this at all. I would assume, especially on a beautiful Friday afternoon. And you know, like this isn't go- this isn't going to be a big cash in for them. I can't, but seem to just get out of hand. Where the escalation around is she gonna testimony and or is she gonna testify and the Liberals are filibustering and the NDP get all ginned up and I'm like, What is going on? Like this is an all you know, this is so much hype about and it's gonna be at nothing. And, you know, she answered as she could and that was the end of it. So to me it's kind of a nothing.
0: Well, and they're putting their spin on it anyway, as you expect, I, I suppose they would. Uh, uh, Michael Barrett, who's one of the conservative members of the committee, uh, says uh, afterwards she was unable or unwilling to even acknowledge that the prime minister had even read what was in his daily package. Well, that's that's simply not true, because the clip they ran all Friday evening on the on the national newscast was Telford saying that he reads everything uh, and asks questions about it. So, uh, you know, but that was their talking point before it, and why change now? But so that's a 10-second clip that they want. That's their, their soundbite for it. Uh, but it just, I think, shows how desperate they were. And and by the way, just let me, uh, again, reiterate, I, I still think there should be an inquiry into this. I'm not suggesting the Liberals are off the hook by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but this was a fishing expedition, and they knew that there was nothing in the water here. They, but they just wanted to go through this anyway.
2: I think you're absolutely right. And I think the talking point... Piece is key here, right? Like, it didn't matter what she said. They were going to, the talking points were written by that point, and then they were going to continue with it, even if it was in direct, you know, conflict with what she actually said. And I also think, to the extent that anybody's listening about, you know, what the chief of staff to the prime minister's testimony was, they're listening to, um, you know, people like Pierre Polyev talk about it. They're not necessarily watching it themselves. And so, they're kind of like setting themselves up to be like the the conservatives are setting themselves up to be the spokespeople to to people about what actually happened and what she actually said, and so you know they may be talking to a constituency of people who who this matters to them. You know you can see some parallels between the way the conservatives are responding to Telford's testimony, the way they're treating David Johnston, which is absolutely appalling with this, you know, letter on, on the poly of letterhead where he calls him like rapporteur in, in quotations instead of right honorable, which a former governor general is for life. Like that sort of thing. What is this? Is it a kind of anti-elite, um, you know, thing that, that they think they're going to be able to do to impress their supporters and, and raise money on this kind of thing when it's, it's just uh, I don't, not, not a great moment, Bill, I don't think, in political communications in our time.
0: Yeah, but this is Polyev. I mean, that's, that's the game plan, mm-hmm. isn't it? He attacks institutions and, uh, you know, yeah. just like a famous politician south of the border kind of made his hay doing that very same mm-hmm. thing you know, wanting to have the CBC branded as a government-funded age, you know, Pia Polyev is a government-funded media source too, for God's sakes, but he doesn't want to go down that road, does he? I mean, he's never drawn a paycheck that wasn't signed by the the government of Canada, and and he's got his Twitter account, which is funded by the government of Canada, but at the same time, he wants to slam the CBC because it's kind of the thing to do with that constituency.
2: Well, that's it. Like, he, I mean... They're clearly focus grouping this stuff. they're clear they must be seeing some kind of a of a benefit, even if it's a small one on attacking institutions and the people who populate them. I just don't know how that's a winning strategy for somebody who wants to occupy the high, like one of the highest offices in the land. What are you going to do then? if you become prime minister, are you going to cut your own office down? like it's a bit bizarre to me. and we see again, as you say, we see these happening in other countries, this sort of modern populism, which is really about like high cynicism and suspicion of the role of government in our lives and questioning every part of it. And so he keeps doing this and sort of rotating around different institutions, as you say, whether it's the Bank of Canada, um, David Johnston, CBC, whatever it is. They, he puts this sort of, you know, horns and a tail on all of them. But what is he going to do when he's actually there? It's just, you know, if he is, it's just kind of bizarre to me. It seems like it's it's some, a strategy that's going to end up swallowing him whole in the end. And it's going to disappoint the people who think he's, he's, you know, anti-government to the bone. And then he gets in there and he starts to see, you know, as he knows already because he was a minister. And as you say, he's a government guy. Every check he's ever had has been written by the government of Canada. So the fact that he gets away with this and he's not called out for it, I don't get it. Some conservatives are calling him out. But you know it just seems like he's he 's gone far way too far on this line of argument without really kind of being put in his place about it with respect to you know his own employment, his own career over his whole life
0: well i mean you know let 's face it if there's a prime Minister Paulie, of first of all he 's going to tear apart the bank of canada he 's going to blow up a CBC uh, and replace them with what well he hasn 't said, but you know he he thinks anyway, I guess he 's scoring points it reminds me of the classic example of this was years and years ago. Uh, when Preston Manning was running, uh, it was the Alliance Party at first and then the Reform Party and, and said, you know, he says, if I become leader of the opposition, I will refuse to live in the official opposition residence. I'm not going to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he actually, the next election, did become the leader of the opposition. He, I guess he went through the front door and said, this is kind of nice. I don't know, I'm, I'm staying. Oh, yeah. uh, you know what they say and what they do are two different things a lot of the time.
2: It, exactly. And perhaps they just sort of bank on people forgetting about that. But I think, you know, maybe some people do, but a lot of people don't. And then you start from this inenviable, unenviable position of trying to figure out how you're going to navigate leadership of these institutions that you've been cutting down for a while. And I think he's still extremely light on what policies he's actually going to pursue, even if he was given, you know, and I mean, people have raised some very important questions around who the heck is going to support a poly of government if he wins a plurality of seats in the next election, but not a majority Really, is Digmeet Singh going to sign on to that? I've always wondered whether this liberal NDP deal is actually sort of in anticipation of a poly of plurality, where the liberals and the NDP could say, look, together we still have a majority, and so we're going to keep going, which I think would be absolutely you know, pandemonium in the streets for because Polyev would just light the world
0: on fire. And like, Laura, I remember, we almost got to that point some years ago yeah. when Stephen Harper got his major- minority government and uh, there was the, the, the proposed coalition between, uh, who was it, Stéphane Dion and Jack Layton and uh, Gilles mm-hmm. Duceppe, uh, from the mm. block, And, and of course, Stephen Harper started to say it was unconstitutional. It was, was going to cause a national crisis. There'll be civil war. And he basically dissolved Parliament, went to the Governor General, and, and just said, we're going to have another election. It was not unconstitutional, by the way. But, uh, you know, when the fear-mongering is, is you know, yeah. the, the way that these guys want to go in situations like that, it's going to happen. And yeah, that could be a precursor of what might happen in the next election. We don't know.
2: Exactly. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when Stephen Harper did that back in 2008, a... He wasn't a terribly, um, you know, he wasn't a guy who, who communicated emotionally, if I could put it that way. He wasn't really a f- like that sort of same type of communication as we see now. He was pretty deadpan most of the time, but he still managed to get people pretty fearful about what that sort of coalition could look like. Even though, as you say, it was totally legitimate if it had ha- if it had happened, it didn't. But now I think we are far more prone as a, as a whole society. Um, there, you see a whole lot more fear-mongering now in communications. You see a whole lot more, you know, getting people riled up about something. You see a whole lot more, um, you know, mistruths and and, you know, complete falsehoods flying around and mixed in with truth, and you can't tell the difference. And so now I think we would be a lot more vulnerable to that sort of argument that such a, a situation would not be constitutional, which it would
0: and by the way as i mentioned back in 2008 when that was being proposed it scared the hell out of me too that those three would be running the government but but my point was it's not unconstitutional but and they can do that because what the governor general does to go back to your civics classes for those who may have forgotten uh they don't say okay you've got you're, they ask can you form a government well if the answer is no then she, he or she the governor general has to go to somebody else and so oh, yeah. that, that's the logistics of it. And that's the reality. I got a couple of seconds left here. There's yet another article uh, from Ch- Chantal Bear, who I, I always enjoy reading in the Star. Uh, again, uh, talking about what if, about uh, reasons why Justin Trudeau may step down. Uh, uh, you're up there all the time, Laurie. Is there any indication at all that this guy's even thinking about riding off into the sunset? No, not at all. I
2: think the reason that the questions are being asked is just because of the length of time of his leadership, right? He's, he's at the 10-year mark. As le- leader of the Liberal Party, he's almost at the eight-year mark for prime minister, and he's had three elections. And so by any other historical record, right, like this guy has had his time in a way. And so I think there's questions because of that, not because he's given any indication that he's thinking about doing anything different. And because also, it's a you know, long story, but it's, it's really difficult for all kinds of reasons for um, leadership transition to occur these days, particularly when you've got a leader who wants to hold on, and you've got a party that's really formed in his image. Trying to launch some sort of bid to replace him would, could be like political suicide for somebody. Like, who's going to do that? Who's going to say, put their hand up and say, I think I'd like to, to you know, have Trudeau step aside so that I can do this? Good luck. And so I don't think that's going there's not going to be oxygen for that until Trudeau's ready for it. I think he'll be the one who decides when he walks, unless he loses the next election big time.
0: Exactly, whenever that's going to be. Laurie, as always, have a great week. We'll talk again next week, and uh, thanks again for this today. Thank you, too, Bill. Take good care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University with uh, an eye on what's happening in the nation's capital.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. We're on uh, what's happening here in Ontario politics, and there's a, a lot going on here. Uh, there's a, another community that feels as if the government's sticking their nose into their planning processes uh, to try to get more homes built, not necessarily in areas where they should be built. Uh, but a lot of cities falling under that guise right now. Uh, and the premium had headlines earlier uh, in the week as well. Ah, uh, Doug Ford says he likes this idea of moving the Ontario Science Centre from East Toronto, where it's currently located. Of course, that's just off the the Don Valley Parkway, to a downtown site at Ontario Place. Now, it, it's interesting here because he's uh, kicking a couple of problems uh, down the road here. Uh, the redevelopment of Ontario Place, uh, the site there on the waterfront, has been a very controversial topic for a number of years. Uh, downtown Toronto, and it's not just a Toronto issue because, let's face it, it's it's Ontario Centre. The provincial government has a large role to play in here. Uh, but he was asked about the prospect of moving the uh, Science Centre there, and he says, yeah, it, it would be a win-win situation. He's saying, you know, well, we could move that down there to Ontario Place, that would be an anchor for them. People want to go to the Science Centre, they go to Ontario Place. And what about the old site for the Science Centre? He says, well, what else are they going to do? It's their theme. He says, we'd build housing. Here's what the Premier said. There's a lot of high-rises density around that whole area. That's where the Ontario line is going to go to as well. So I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to create um, some attainable homes and affordable and non-profit homes in that region if we decide to, to go down that route. Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, some people are asking whether or not that was kind of a quasi-policy announcement, or the shift and change of what's going on here. We'll talk about that with our next guest. She is Sabrina Nanju, who is the publisher of Queens Park Observer, keeping an eye on what's going on uh, with our provincial government. Sabrina, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi, Bill. Happy Monday.
0: And to you, too. Uh, what about this Queen's, and I don't want to call it an announcement, but I mean, because he, he was there for a totally different situation. Uh, but one of the reporters in the pool, of course, asked him about uh, what was going to be happening with the Science Centre and Ontario Place. And, and it raised a few eyebrows. I don't. I, I guess a lot of people weren't really figuring that he was going to try to connect those dots, but there's clearly been some discussion about it.
1: Yeah, you're right. Uh, The premier pretty much scooped his infrastructure minister, which I'm hearing is going to make the announcement official tomorrow, uh, that the Science Centre, currently in the North York area here in Toronto, uh, will be moved down uh, to Ontario Place, because as we know, the Waterfront Park is going through this big makeover, uh, big redevelopment, and the premier loves the idea. He said it came to him a year ago. It's become a topic now, um, a big topic in the Toronto mayoral election as well, Um, and and he pretty much all but confirmed that that this is happening. Uh, Interestingly enough, there was a public consultation this weekend, uh, you know, yet another one on on these uh, sometimes controversial proposals for Ontario Place, and it actually got mixed reviews. I think it's interesting because the Ford government kind of does this often, where it seems like they've leak their own, uh, policy moves and changes just as a bit of a trial balloon to see the reaction. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, some people are all for having the science center downtown. Uh, why not? You know, it it would be easier to access. Um, there's already a lot happening down there. So why not make a day out of it? Even, you know, stay, stay around there. Hotel X is also building another tower in the area. Um, and, and so while it's getting some praise, it's also getting, um, you know, some hate as well. I think a lot of people are concerned about traffic uh, with with getting down to that area. Obviously, you know, it is an up and coming space. So I think, you know, a lot of this is going to matter on the rollout of it and putting it into practice. But in terms of is, is this happening, I think you can, you can bank on it uh, being official tomorrow.
0: Uh, but they're running out of ideas for Ontario Place though, aren't they? I mean, you know, th- this has been a, a contentious subject and you'll be reporting on this for a long, long time now. Uh, and it's it has you know permeated into Toronto politics as well. You know, at one time they were going to put a casino in there that didn't go well with an awful lot of people, uh, and they're they're kind of running out of innovative ideas to stick something in there. And this may be, uh, as much as you say, there's some pushback on it. It may be the only logical solution for them at, at this stage, anyway. Unless somebody comes into the last minute and just says, you know, here's a, a ton of money, I want to build X here, but that doesn't seem to be in the cards
1: no and you know this has been a long uh, a long project in the works here I think a lot of people kind of want to get a move on um, even though there has been some pushback and in particular over therma's uh, private spa and wellness center there'll be a water park too uh, obviously that company has had to even change their proposal a few times to have more public space because of the the pushback here um, so you know while it still could be a bit of a fight I think the sh- what we're starting to see at Ontario places is, is probably, you know, what it's going to end up looking like. It seems like what's currently on the table, the Ford government is is happy with and going to move ahead. But don't forget, we have this mayoral election coming up in Toronto, and while it might be hard for the city to block, you know, some of these moves by the province, uh, and and don't forget, you know, municipalities are creatures of the province. Uh, and Ford has shown he's not shy to meddle in this, and so he could make some tweaks that. Uh, You know, even takes away some of their their powers over this. Um, But, you know, certainly whoever is the mayor, if they're not a fan of the Ford government's vision um, for, you know, this this waterfront park, uh, they could certainly at least make it very difficult to, to see it through.
0: Speaking with uh, Sabrina Nanji, publisher of Queen's Park Observer, speaking of which, uh, meddling in, in municipal affairs, uh, there's some concern about that, of course, uh, with what they're doing with uh, uh, the city of Hamilton right now with urban boundary expansion. Uh, it, also, just a couple of days ago, as you were reporting, the province bypassed the region of Waterloo planning department uh, to open up more land for for development there. And uh, and it's not quite as controversial as the, as the Greenbelt, because apparently, as, as I read it anyway, this was probably. probably. Probably going to be, you know, set aside for for residential development at some stage, Uh, but not now. And and the government has said, well, it's happening now. That's essentially the story, is it?
1: Yeah, you're right. And it's not just Waterloo, you know, Peterborough and there are other areas, too, um, that are are being overrided by the province. And I think that this is... you know, we we know the province has its vision for housing and these ambitious plans, but I, I think this kind of raises a lot of questions about governance. Uh, we know that the Ford government has a regional review right now. Um, they've not been afraid to take over municipal decision-making. And so I think if you're a city or a town, you're elected there for a reason. The people elected you there because you obviously have a vision that the folks who are actually living there want to see put forward. And so it kind of, I, I think, might end up uh, souring the relationship between the province and municipalities, which isn't really doing so hot right now either. Don't forget, we've got Bill 23 scrapping those developer fees that municipalities rely on. There's all these questions about these regional reviews. Are they going to be making changes to the, the governance, uh, you know, city councils, regional councils, that type of thing. Um, and the government has shown that they are willing to just put a just kind of bulldoze ahead with their plan. So it really becomes like a credibility issue and an issue of, you know, what power do municipalities have? Because we have seen the local governments really you know shrinking in their power here. Uh, there, there's really not much that these cities and towns can do when the province says, you know, we've seen your official plan and we think ours is better.
0: Well, and, and that's, I, I think, the rub here, isn't it? There's probably not anybody that ran for municipal governments in, the, in last October that didn't use this, at least part of their campaign platform, is that, you know, planning should be done at the local level. It's our community, and and we should decide who's going to be building what and where they're going to build it. Well, that's pretty much been taken out of their hands. And not only that, but of course, as you mentioned, with some companion pieces of legislation, uh, even the way that that. Previously, anyway, that municipalities could protest and 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 maybe you know do, do something about it has been taken away from them with the the powers of the tribunal and and who can even apply for those sorts of things right now. So it's uh, it's it's becoming government out of Queens Park right now, and I don't think that's re- really resonating well with an awful lot of municipalities across the province.
1: I think it's all going to matter in you know the follow through here. If the Ford government can do what they say they're going to do and meet this ambitious goal of 1.5 million new homes over 10 years you and I have talked before about these housing starts sort of poking holes in those plans. So it seems like a really, a bit touch and go right now, a big if, but if the Ford government can pull it off, I think they'll end up looking victorious in this front, you know, Um, maybe the ends justify the means that overriding, you know, some local politicians and decisions might end up just being okay. If the Ford government can do this, but if in, you know, uh, less than four years from now in 2026, if, you know, Marit Stiles with the NDP or whoever the new leader of the the Liberal Party is is standing in like an empty field and saying, you know, Ford promised there would be housing here. Uh, that's going to be a really powerful statement to people. And I think the Ford government would at that point be shaking in their boots uh, and I might get kicked out of Queens Park
0: well are they scrambling as a result of that because you remember you and i talked last week about the uh, the projected numbers uh, when the ontario government projected their budget a few weeks ago uh, minister bethlen falby you know, talked about those projections and they're not going to come anywhere near close to those so is this a, a hastily uh, put together plan b to say okay we're let's housing here okay let's stick some here let's stick some here to try to bring those numbers back up
1: well certainly they haven't uh you know satisfactorily shown their math on this uh, they they Their own budget, as you pointed out, shows that housing starts are already, you know, way behind where they need to be to meet these goals. And they tell us that those are based on private sector projections. Sure. Okay. We can, we can agree with that, but they haven't really shown us the numbers when taking into account their own policy changes. And, you know, they have policy experts uh, on their team here, you know, bureaucrats on the technical side that could probably project out these types of things. And so I'm sure that, uh, the, the budget watchdog in particular is is probably going to be looking into this and keeping a close eye on, on some of this and could could probably have more access and, and behind the scenes information to really tell us, you know, is this doable? Um, and of course, you know, you, we can ask the FAO, the financial accountability officer, uh, their, their thoughts on this. But um, I've heard that some MPPs have requested a more in-depth report uh, on this, which, you know, MPPs have that power, they can request from the budget watchdog, uh, an in-depth report on this and, and really, you know, look at if the government can, can do what it says it's going to do.
0: Uh, you mentioned, uh, whoever the Liberal leader might be. We got some clarity on that over the weekend, didn't we? They have announced the, this is the Ontario Liberal Party, of course, uh, the, the plans for their leadership convention, which is actually going to be wrapped up, I guess, by the end of the year.
1: Yeah, that's right. We'll be getting a new Liberal captain by December 2nd. Uh, They laid out the rules of the race this weekend, Um, and and a lot of it sounds familiar. A lot of it is kind of a repeat from the last time, which actually wasn't that long ago in 2020, when we saw Steven Del Duga come to power and then resign after another brutal election showing. So uh, for the potential people who want to be Liberal leader, So far, that includes, you know, MPs, Nader, Skin smith Yasser Nackby. Over at Queens Park, there's Ted Shue, Stephanie Bowman. Uh, You know, Bonnie Crombie is also a rumored contender. It's a crowded, you know, early field, but those folks will have to cough up cough up $100,000 to join the race, plus another $25,000. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, deadlines coming up very soon. So I think that the race is going to start to sh- take shape over the summer. And it's actually quite brilliant from the Liberals because the summer is typically slow news time. But because they will be really in the thick of their leadership contest, a lot of us will be paying attention to it, writing about it. They'll get a lot of headlines and a lot of buzz. Um, uh, you know, the new leader will be able to build up their program. Profile that way. Um, and that's something that the NDP, you know, arguably their other competition at Queen's Park besides the conservatives didn't really get because Marit Stiles was just acclaimed automatically. And it was rather a bit of a snooze fest, you could say, compared to the liberals who are scheduling five leadership debates. So prepare to hear a lot about the grits.
0: What are you hearing about Bonnie Crombie? Bonnie, just to remind our listeners, of course, is the mayor of Mississauga. Uh, What is it? The third, fourth largest city in the country. Um, She was a former MPP, former cabinet minister, of course, in a previous level of administration and and left that to go and run for mayor. Do you leave a, let's face it, a prestigious job like that to to run a a party that's in third place right now and struggling to find out exactly who they are? Because I'm hearing from some of the folks I know the liberal insiders, these are the back room people that I, I talked to a couple of weeks ago and they said, it's hers to lose. If she wants, to, if she's in, she's, she's, she'll win it. But uh, she doesn't seem as if she wants to jump.
1: Well, I I have heard both sides, you know. Um, Not too long ago at the Liberal Party convention, um, which Bonnie Crombie attended, you know, she said she was there to talk about Mississauga and mayoral issues, but, you know, folks close to her, including her family, were saying, yeah, you know, we want mom to run. Uh, And and there are a lot of liberals who agree. You know, we've talked about her before. Bonnie Crombie would be a great foil to Doug Ford. She really has held his fire to the feet. She knows how to hold him accountable, and she's very good at getting under her skin. We've seen him call her out specifically um, over this scrapping of developer fees. I think what would push Bonnie into the race is what happens with this regional review. Um, There's been buzz about a potential mega city of Peel, you know, maybe combining Brampton and Mississauga and Caledon. Uh, That is something that the Ford government is considering, but of course, nothing is set in stone. Um, You know, Bonnie Crombie has already been pushing her city to be more independent, more single-tier, and so I, I think that if this happens, she would probably move on from the Civic Arena and make the jump to Queen's Park. But it, it's early days yet. You know, they, they the candidates have until September to sign up. They need a lot of time to raise this money. But that's the only um, disadvantage, let's say, for, for Bonnie Crombie, is that she would be a, a late late in the game contender. And other folks like Nader Smith, Yatsunakvi, they have been spending these past months fundraising you know, going out there, touring the province, meeting people. So, so they've really been working on their ground game. But as you said, you know, Bonnie is a very high-profile person that even if she was to start the race late, I, I don't think it would be a huge disadvantage to her.
0: That idea of the super city, I, I know we're just about out of time, but it just intrigues me because we talked about this, uh, I guess, before the election. And you're right, they, they, Ford kind of backed away from that. But it's it's got to be tempting for him because he's not a big fan of Bonnie Crombie. He certainly doesn't like Patrick Brown and Brampton. Uh, and if they moved ahead with this, I mean, he could, you know, he seemingly could take out two of his political enemies uh, with one stroke of the pen. I, I don't know if he'll go that far, because I think you're right. Uh, the pushback from both communities, I think, would be extensive. And boy, I tell you, in in provincial politics, especially, you need those seats in those two areas, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, the GTA, and in particular, the 905, I mean, it's a seat rich area They can make or break you. Um, the Ford government has picked up a lot of seats, especially in the last election, last Last spring. Um, and, and so th- they are very, you know, they have their ears close to the ground to hear what people want here. But I think if they were to do this, uh, you know, Patrick Brown might try to be a, a mega city mayor. And I do think someone like him could pull this off. So if it did come down to a political grudge match, I think Patrick Brown could, could put up a good fight, but then Ford might create a new enemy for himself in, in Bonnie Crombie and the liberals. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting to see. Uh, And we'll be tracking that story. And of course, checking it out in the Queens park observer, as always, uh, Sabrina, thank you so much for this. Have a great week. Thanks for having me. Take care. You're listening to the bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a busy weekend in uh, U.S. politics, Uh, former U S president, Donald Trump, uh, has promised to save America's Second Amendment rights from what he calls obliteration. That's despite his contradictory history on guns. Trump's comments were at the National Rifle Association's annual convention, and they come mere days after more mass shootings in Nashville and Louisville, among others. Trump says that if he's reelected to office, he will continue to fight against firearms restrictions. I was proud to be the most pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment president you've ever had in the White House. I think that's been acknowledged and with your support, in 2024, I will be your loyal friend and fearless champion once again as the 47th President of the United States. Uh, Mike Pence is a former vice president who also, of course, is uh, kicking the tires about running for president. He actually got booed initially when he spoke to the NRA crowd. So what do we read into that, uh, especially in light of, as you say, more deaths because of mass shootings? Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, great to have you back on. Uh, boy, just the the, the rhetoric about Donald Trump is Donald Trump. I guess we expect that. But uh, uh, the the animosity now between some of the major contenders for the Republican nomination, especially Trump and Pence, is, is palpable, isn't it?
3: Sure, it is, uh, and and I think that it is expected. Uh, I mean, look, Donald Trump taking the stage uh, before a crowd that is very pro-Trump, that has been supportive of Donald Trump for several years. Uh, they see Mike Pence uh, as somebody is as, as a bit of a quote unquote traitor that we, we saw what took place on January 6th. We understand how the base views the former vice president as somebody who kind of turned on Donald Trump to to you know steal or rig the election to give it to, to Joe Biden. So it's, it's not surprising that we saw uh, the crowd boo Mike Pence as he was up there to speak. Um, even though some of the things that Pence was speaking ultimately uh, kind of sticks to some of the people that were in the crowd. But when it comes to the the, the comments and the, the the discussions over the Second Amendment from the former president, these are talking points not only from him, but from within his advisory circle and from within the National Rifle Association itself, especially when you have the former president kind of echoing that evergreen line within the nra that this is not a gun problem this is a mental health problem hard to say that that is you know what the reality is especially when there's so much other evidence out there that suggests otherwise but to that point reggie
0: you know, given the the legislation that has been passed and it's been a, a uphill battle to get anything done but it has happened with a couple of past administrations does the nra still have the the the
3: the, the swagger do they still have the the political power that they once had I mean, they still have a loud voice and they still have a strong base. I don't know what the influence of the NRA is all that much anymore because there has been such a rise in the uh, anti-gun violence movement around the United States. There have been uh, a number of uh, organizations that are now, you know, not maybe as well stocked financially as the NRA once was, um, you know, years ago, but there is far more. Uh, vocal pushback to the NRA. And the NRA itself has been in you know, disarray for the last several years. Their financials aren't really posted. We don't know what their true membership numbers are. We don't know what the actual numbers are when it comes to dollars that are coming from and coming in. That said, when you can fill a room up, when you can put a big ticket name on there, like not somebody who's just the former president, but somebody who's running for 2024, it keeps the at least the three letters NRA important in the conversation especially within conservative circles
0: well especially with those candidates or even the ones who may be you know about to be candidates uh they all seem to be trying to appeal to that hardcore right base right wing base don't they and the nra no matter how big their numbers might be
3: nationally uh those those are votes and that support that all of those candidates are going to want absolutely it's support um and and you know it, it becomes trickier the further you go into this campaign, as to whether latching on to the Second Amendment and gun rights becomes the critical, you know, piece of of policy or legislation that somebody is going to want to attach themselves to, especially when, you know, as we've seen over the last several years, the Republican base uh, has key issues that they want to be able to deal with, and you know, these candidates have to be able to dance delicately to not focus on one and potentially ignore the others. Obviously, gun rights are a huge um, topic of discussion in in the united states along with the second uh, amendment but you know increasingly we are seeing the the conversation around um you know lgbtq rights or abortion rights really start to also become a part of the conversation the problem being though is that those issues are starting to divide the republican party topic of guns keeps that party together
0: yeah, and that's been ongoing, but let's let's swing into that because I think you've hit the nail on the head as you have been with your reporting over the last couple of months really about what's going on down there and that it, it, since ever since well they they technically cut say the overturning of Roe versus Wade the, the Supreme Court didn't really do that they basically said it's not federal jurisdiction knowing full well of course that you know once they turned it over to the to the states, i think over 38 or 39 of the 50 states are governed by Republicans, so they knew what was going to happen. And and now you've got Ron DeSantis basically trying to out Trump Trump
3: with the legislation that he's pushing in Florida right now, and and it could become problematic for not only the Republicans but for DeSantis himself. And you know, always worth pointing out, Ron DeSantis is still the Florida governor. He is not um, a, a member of the the kind of race towards twenty twenty four at least yet. He has not put in uh, his candidacy. For, for fact. It is still just kind of widely speculated, but the, the moves that Ron DeSantis has been making over the last couple of months and even the last couple of days, um, pandering towards some within the Republican base, are not sitting well more broadly, not only within the base, but also with the donors. And all we have to do is look back to uh, last week when the Florida governor signed a six-week ban on abortion, despite the fact that his 15, uh, 15-week ban is still being fought out in the Florida courts. The six-week ban, it would be one of the most restrictive in the nation. It effectively cuts off abortion access now to something like 20 million people of reproductive age in the South, where their own states have cut back on restrictions. And this isn't sitting well with some donors. In fact, one of the most um, influential donors within the Republican Party says that this may even be too radical for him, and he may pull back from Desantis, so there appears to be a line in the sand, as murky as it might be, when it comes to how the Republican Party views the matter of abortion. Well, and, and you got to wonder about their their headspace here, because uh, I've seen
0: that as, as you've been reporting about some of the pushback. Uh, one of the most latest, uh, latest, I guess, is is, uh, is Governor Sinunu. Uh, who's worried about this? He's a Republican, second generation. His father, of course, was a, a key advisor in Republican administrations of bygone days. Uh, but he's still a "quote unquote" Republican, and he's he just finds it revolting that uh, these guys are taking to the stand they are, including what he calls a personal friend of his, Tim Scott. Who announced he was going to be a candidate? He was kind of testing the waters, and again, coming up with a very controversial uh, policy on abortion right now that that you know
3: Sinunu says
0: is going to turn off even
3: you know hardcore Republicans. It really could put these Republican candidates in a difficult space. Um, you know, not just in the nomination process running up to. Um, you know that point, but then if that person becomes a nominee running up against whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be, likely Joe Biden, and the just vocal segment of the Democratic part of the United States, but within that bill, when you have some Republicans pushing back, this is not kind of a small fringe part of the Republican base that is feeling uneasy with the republic uh, with the abortion conversation. Uh, the recent polling, as late as last week, late last week, showed that something like fifty one or fifty two percent of Republicans are against having states uh, deal with restrictions when it comes to abortion, and believe that this should be something that is done at the national level. And yes, you have members of Re- the Republican Party in the House trying to do something about that. You know, it would likely run into resistance in the Senate and with the president. But that's that's a remarkable number to know that there's now more than half of the Republican base who is. Possibly on the opposite side of where someone like Ron DeSantis is. And what does that do, Bill? Well, it possibly allows someone like Donald Trump to maybe modify a bit of how their, their, their viewpoint is on a matter like abortion to possibly draw over some of that Republican vote. This could become problematic for people like DeSantis and Tim Scott. Despite the fact that they have all this money in the bank from donors, it might not be enough to secure them the top spot if they keep these kinds of views.
0: But you know, from a political standpoint, and you've I had you and I have had this discussion in the past, those people to the extreme right you know, that are pushing Scott and, and Stantis and others, they're they're on their side anyway. They're not going anywhere else. Uh, but but yet they seem to pander to them, probably at the expense of of moderate Republicans. And I know that's not a phrase we use very much these days, but I mean, you, you know, you, you do the research on this. There are still moderate Republicans, not just Mitt Romney, but others, uh, not just elected officials, but state officials, in other words, that are very fearful of what this is going to mean in the general election in a year and a half, two years, I guess
3: now. Sure, it does. And and look, the polling, at least, you know, polls are a dime a dozen and you have to look at them kind of with a, a couple of grains of salt here. But if you look at, you know, targeted polls, there was just some that came out uh, for swing states like Pennsylvania and Arizona. Those individual states, even though only about 500 people were talked to, show that they would choose DeSantis over Donald Trump. When you broaden this out nationally, uh, the numbers You know, put a better idea as to where the picture is, especially in a broader conversation about something like abortion. It is not sitting well with a broad majority of Republicans. And the national aggregate numbers show that if Ron DeSantis were to be in the race, he would be sitting at about 29%. Uh, of the the favorable numbers, Donald Trump is sitting in and around 47 or 48%. And I think that are those are the at least early numbers to pay attention to is that are these kind of viewpoints and policies and bits of legislation that are coming out at the state level, reflective of what the, the bigger numbers are across the country. And Donald Trump and his team are likely going to try to seize on that to push back to say this is why X and Y Republican aren't the person for the job.
0: Is the concern here, though, with the, the brain trust for the Republican Party, and again, it's at the, both federal and state level, uh, the disenchanted Republicans, if if they continue to go this way, they, they, I don't think the
3: concern uh, is, is that they're going to go and vote Democrat. They're just going to stay home. I think that's a that's a real possibility. Um, And I think that if you look at what the what the polling shows, disenchanted Republican now has two different meanings. You have disenchanted kind of con- old school conservative Republicans who aren't feeling comfortable with someone like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis that could find themselves voting for um the Democrats. But you also have these newfound disenchanted Republicans who feel that the old school Republican Party is starting to turn their back on them. And maybe they're the ones who run towards Ron DeSantis or, or Tim Scott. And what you end up with is a bit of a split vote here. And and how does that play out for Republicans? Well, we would have to wait to find out. So I think disenchanted is is a word to look at in how it's impacting a, a Republican party that is incredibly split. It was already split during the Trump years. It's now that parts of that Trump faction are splitting even further off, and that could pose a problem for whoever is going to try to be the nominee. The other element
0: to this, too, and you've done some great reporting on this in the last little while, is when we head towards that election when, you know, about a year and a half, two years ago. uh, it, it may also depend on who's in court <laughs> uh, with the charges against Trump. Uh, the, 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 the Georgia investigation is ongoing. The Mar-a-Lago investigation is ongoing. And all of this, of course, uh, at the same time, Fox News is in, in the courts right now uh, with their lawsuit with Dominion. And, uh, and that is not seemingly going to go well for Fox. And you got to wonder what that's going to do for what many people consider to be the anchor or the, or the media voice of the Republicans.
3: I mean, and, and look, you know, this, this, it was supposed to start today, this trial. It was postponed by a day, uh, now start set to begin, uh, tomorrow. And what I think is just remarkable about this is as this Republican party is trying to look towards 2024 with a candidate who, lost the 2020 election, trying to win it again in 2024. Fox and Donald Trump and those from within are still trying to push lies about an election that is in the past and can't be changed. Um, And this could pose problems for Fox News going forward. Look, Dominion is looking for more than a billion dollars in what they believe are damages. They're also potentially going to look for some kind of changes or mea culpa editorially, at least Within Fox News, Uh, this is going to be a difficult case for Fox to try and push back because the judge has already said, look, the jury will be instructed that everything you said about Dominion and everything about the the election was a lie. And that's going to be a hard hill for Fox to be able to climb over, even though Donald Trump this morning on his social media account is pushing back on, you know, doubling down on the claims that 2020 was stolen and was a lie and that Fox News should have done more. To secure Trump that win. This is going to be a monumental six week trial that ultimately could, you know, set a new precedent on what journalistic standards look like when it comes to what is being reported on and the truth that needs to be there.
0: And, and I know this started, uh, you know, months ago, I guess, uh, you know, with the revelation about, you know, calling, uh, you know, the election on election night and a number of Fox, uh, personalities, including Rupert Murdoch, I guess, were pretty upset about that. But I mean, that, that's all, that's, that's right now at this stage, you know, pretext of what's going on now. That what about the Hannity's though and the others who basically have said, yeah, we lied. We know we were lying and we lied anyway. Uh,
3: is their credibility impacted at all, Reggie? It's possible. I mean, look, uh, the list of people to testify include names like Hannity and Maria Bartiromo and 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 Tucker Carlson and most of the, the Murdoch family uh, who has control, including, um, you know, Fox members uh, on the board uh, and former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, is one of those people. There could be a serious credibility problem here. I think we have to also watch for the fact is, could there potentially be a settlement? Do we see Dominion saying, look, we'll settle for a smaller amount, but you have to come out and your posts have to go on air? and publicly acknowledge that the information they were saying was a lie. That could also pose a credibility problem for Fox, at least in the eyes of its viewers and its still biggest viewer being Donald Trump. Again, this is going to be a six-week trial if a settlement doesn't happen that is going to have wide-ranging implications and likely have a trickle-down effect into how 2024 is reported on. Well,
0: you're right, and, and you know there, there were Carson's comments about how he couldn't stand Donald Trump, and Donald Trump couldn't stand Fox anymore. Yet, uh, there the two of them were on camera about a week or so ago, with Tucker Carlson uh, fawning all over the the former president. Uh, it's going to be a busy week, Reggie. We'll be watching with great interest for your reporting on Global National. Thanks so much for staying with us today. We we'll really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Take care, Reggie Jukiti. The global news correspondent in the U.S. Capitol.